Well, if when you open your Bibles, if they don't just fall open to 1 Kings, I would invite you to turn there to chapter 20. As has been our custom, we have a relatively large text, an entire chapter, chapter 20, that we'll be looking at this morning. So I will, rather than read the entire chapter at the outset, I will read portions of it as we go through so that we can follow along with the narrative, with the story. But let us first go to the Lord, go to the one who wrote the story, who ordained the story, and let us seek his blessing in our prayers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us how good you are to us, that you would show us our need of you and your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you can imagine the scene, kind of like an outdoor concert, people sitting around in a semicircle on the lawn. And a murmur starts. People hustling to and fro. How in the world are we going to feed all these people? I didn't know we would be here this long. I didn't know the Master would teach this long. There's no way we can feed all these people. Back and forth. You ask him. No, you ask him. No, you go ask him. You're always the one. And a little boy walks up and he says, I've got a sack lunch. And you can imagine. Oh, well, that's nice, child. Okay, why don't you go stand over there? And God takes that sack lunch and he feeds a multitude. Our Lord Jesus. You may imagine a, a similar scene centuries later occurring in churches in England. Well, you know, now we have a firm presence in this place called India. How in the world are we going to get the gospel into India? How can we possibly do that? There's so many people. They're so far away. We don't have established churches. There's no cathedrals. What can we do? And a cobbler comes forward and he says, I'll go. And they say, what are you going to do? You're just one man. Besides, if God wants to convert him, he'll convert him himself. He doesn't need us. And he says, I'll go. And he goes and he labors. Perhaps there's a different scene playing out in your living rooms even this week as we stand and look at the screens and we say, how in the world can we face the threat of Islam? As bombs explode everywhere and as Christians are persecuted, hung, forced into marriages, children taken away. How in the world can we cope and survive? Well, if you know anything about those stories, whether in history or in your own life, you perhaps know a little bit about how the kingdom of Israel felt at the time of this war with Syria laid out in 1 Kings 20. 
And what we're going to see this morning is God's answer to our doubt and our unbelief. Showing the strong arm of His power. We're going to see three things here that you shouldn't do, whether you be a Syrian pagan or a member of God's covenant family. You don't threaten the Lord. You don't seek to show your power greater than His or to manipulate circumstances. One thing that you don't do is you don't threaten the Lord. But even beyond that, a second thing we're going to see is that you don't limit the Lord. We're going to look at what I call, and others have called, Syrian theology. And examine a bit whether we dabble in it. Don't threaten the Lord. Don't limit the Lord. And then finally, a reminder to us, both in and outside the church, don't disobey the Lord. That has consequences as well. So let's dive into our story here, and let's see how the Lord is threatened through the threatening of His people. Chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered together his army. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and your children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself like he who takes it off. Thus far the reading of God's word. The first thing that we see here is a threat to the Lord. We see Syria's boast. It comes in the person of its king, Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is a powerful king. You may recognize that name. It's very likely that it was his father, Ben-Hadad I, which makes this Ben-Hadad II, who was hired, bribed by Asa, king of Judah, to attack Israel. So now these are the proverbial chickens coming home to roost. As Ben-Hadad's son comes in 
with a large army. It's a huge army. As a matter of fact, there are 32 vassal states that come in. 32 lesser kings, princes, tribal chieftains are following in the wake. This is how armies are raised in this area of the world at this time. An empire just gathers up a bunch of people and says, you must follow me and we're going to go fight over there. And they do. And Ben-Hadad is a man who is pretty confident in himself. As a matter of fact, we might say he even thinks he's a pretend god. Do you notice the language that he uses? He comes in and he says, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Now, that's meant to catch your ear. It's meant to remind you of all the times we've already heard, Thus says the Lord. You recall that? If you've forgotten, don't worry. We're going to see it again in this chapter. So Ben-Hadad is a man who has a history of violence. His father, dear old dad, is a veteran of campaigns against Israel. He's got a big army with a whole bunch of vassal states who tell him he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he thinks his word is the word of a god. Now contrast that with Ahab and his weakness Look at the response. It's sort of typical Ahab. It's what we've come to expect. Somebody makes a mildly strong to strong suggestion to Ahab. And he says, oh, whatever you say, boss, whatever you say. He does that with his wife. He does that with Elijah. He does it with just about everybody. He's not exactly what you call a strong backboned man. And so he answers back to Ben-Hadad. Well, yes, of course, all that I have is yours. And so we get the impression that there's already a sense in which Israel and Ahab is under the thumb of Syria. They are what we call a vassal state. They are a tribute country. How the mighty have fallen from the days of Solomon. And so he gives this craven response. And later on we see that when he does need to muster up the smallest amount of spine... He has to go get the elders and get them to do his talking for him. So you have Ben-Hadad, the strong king, and Ahab, the weak, foolish, idolatrous king. You can already see where this story's going, can't we? And Syria then begins to make unreasonable demands. You see, this threat is upon the very existence of Israel. It's not just about some gold and silver. Because after Ahab says, sure, whatever you say, boss, the boss says, no, I've changed my mind. Not only do I want the gold and the silver, now my guys are going to go and rummage through your house, break things, and take anything that has any value. The language is literally whatever is precious to your eyes. What he's saying is, I'm going to go through all of your house and all of your servants' houses. I'm going to take the family heirlooms. I'm going to take the photo albums, or I'm going to burn them. I'm going to break the pots and pans. Anything that you like, I'm going to take away from you. How do you like that, Ahab? Now, that's even too much for Ahab. He says, I can't do this. You see... The king of Syria is trying not only to plunder Israel, but to embarrass it. To show that it is a nation that has no power, that is worthless. And that kind of an attack cannot be other than an attack upon the Lord. 
For as sinful as they are, as unrepentant as they are, this is still the people of God. And what the king of Syria is saying is, no one can protect you from me. You are worthless. I'm going to take everything that you have and kick you when you're down. And your God can't do anything about it. Even Ahab understands this. He sees this as an excuse for a war. This demand is so unreasonable, he says, I want you to imagine this, Ahab, when I'm done with you, my army will not be able to gather up a handful of dust from the land that used to be called Samaria. I'm going to make your plain a valley. Your city will be gone forever. And he uses a various, very curious phrase. Do you notice that? He says, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria shall suffice. Have we heard that language before? Ahab has. Just a chapter before. Remember Jezebel? The gods do so to me and more also if I don't make Elijah a dead man like the prophets. And so Ahab then is able, I think, to get some sanctified wisdom from He's able to pick, slow as he is, he's able to pick up something from the incidents on Mount Carmel in chapter 18. And he responds back with a pretty witty retort. He says, basically, when you're starting something, don't boast like you've already finished it. Right? Don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Don't play big man when you're putting on your armor like you'd already won and now you're taking it off. Because you see... He, re- he recalls what's going, what went on at Mount Carmel. He recalls how somebody that makes this kind of a boast can fail. His wife probably reminds him of this daily in their living room. He's got a perspective. But this is a perspective that we should have too, isn't it? The Apostle Paul puts it this way for you and for me. He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. You see, we can fall victim to Syrian theology here. We boast in our prayer lives and boast in our church and boast in our families like one who has already taken off the armor, one who's already gone home. You see, the Christian life is one of ups and downs. It's one of struggle. It's a pilgrimage. And we're not to boast in what we have achieved through the grace of God. Ahab understands this. This is Syria's boast. And then we see Jehovah's victory, the way God responds to Syria's boast. It's unexpected. You see, what happens is a prophet comes in, in verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is literally the prophet out of nowhere. The language is very surprising. I think the New King James actually translates this as surprise. Behold, look out, we might say. The Hebrew word is is what you might yell across a room to get someone's attention. It's not surprising that it is a surprise because what has been the game plan of Ahab these last few years? 
It's to kill every prophet in Israel. And now look who shows up. A prophet. And a prophet to help him. And he offers him a plan. Now, you do realize that the plan isn't exactly the best strategy. Now, think about this in our terms. Well, you see, there's this army. The Soviet army is massed across the Cold War front. And they're, they're about, oh, 100,000 strong. And we think the best strategy is to take, say, 300 West Point recruits and attack them. What do you think of that strategy? Is that good? You might say, what? You see, the word here is young man. These are, these are probably high school boys. Remind you maybe of another young man who took on not a large army, but a large enemy named David and Goliath. You see, God purposely uses the weak things of the world because it gives whom the glory? The Lord. So, he takes this strategy. It's not very sound. It's unexpected. But it's also gracious. Because you have to remember, as we said, that Ahab and Jezebel were in the business of killing prophets. And completely unsolicited because Ahab is wise enough to take the advice of the prophet, but he's not smart enough to seek out a prophet. This prophet comes unsolicited with an offer of help. Oh, Ahab, by the way, I know you're not very bright, and I know you're a pretty wicked man, but we're here to save the day. Completely out of nowhere, completely unsolicited. Is that how God breaks into your life? Do you look for him in the unexpected places of your life? Do you look for him to come unsolicited, and when he does, praise him for it? You see, this is how God delights to act. And why does he do this? It's interesting. He says, I am going to give this multitude into your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is another one of these occasions where modern English fails us, and the King James helps us. Perhaps, as we've said before, southern accent helps us. See, here this is not you shall know. It's not y'all or all y'all. This is you, Ahab, singular. I'm going to do all of this and you will know that I am the Lord. You see, God is going to work a work in nations to show one man that he is the Lord God. This is God calling Ahab to repentance. Do you notice how he does it? He doesn't do it by proving to Ahab how bad he is. He does it by showing how good God is. Not that Ahab is without sin. He's calling him sweetly with a call of grace. And so it will be even more foolish when Ahab rejects this. This is how God has acted throughout all of biblical history. This phrase, that you may know I am the Lord, may be familiar to you from the book of Exodus. It's a constant refrain to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. You better wise up. You better obey me. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Why? That you may know I am the Lord. Now, lest you think, glad we're safe. 
We're in church, holding our Bibles. Not like Israel, not like Syria. Do you know where this phrase that you may know, I am the Lord, occurs more than anywhere else in the Scripture? It's in the book of Ezekiel. Eighty out of a hundred times that phrase is used. It's directed at the people of God. I'm going to do this that you may know I am the Lord. You see, God wants you, God wants me to know that He is the Lord, that He is powerful. And He shows this in a complete and utter victory. You don't threaten the Lord. The Syrians don't learn their lesson because then they try and limit the Lord. And the graduate degrees from the theological seminary of Damascus come out and they say, well, you know, King Ben-Hadad, we think we've got this figured out. You see, here's our problem. Israel's God is a God of the hills. So that's where he's really powerful. But you see, our gods are the gods of the plains. So you can obviously see if we fought in the hills, who's going to win? Well, of course they are. But if we get them out on the plains, then their God won't have any power, and our gods will have all the power, and we will win. Guaranteed. Just get them out on the plain, and we will take care of it. And they say, oh, by the way, we've learned from our mistakes. There'll be no more wine in the camp. Because it's really hard to fight a war when you're drunk. So we're not going to do that. We're also going to get better commanders. You know, it's hard. We've got all these 32 vassal kings. They're fighting around like the Three Stooges. They don't know which way is up. We're going to get Syrian commanders and put them in charge. So we're going to fight in a better place with a better command force. And we're going to get a better army. Horse for horse, person for person. I'm telling you, we've thought of all of it. Let's go in and show Israel who's who. You see what they're doing? They're putting a fence around God. They're saying, well, we know what God can do and what he can't do. We can control him. And it's interesting, they have have their own integrated worldview. Do you notice that, students of Mr. McCallum? They have their own worldview. You see, they have practical pragmatism, good commanders... And they have a spiritual worldview. Gods of the hills, gods of the plains. Because it it also makes sense to fight in the plains if Israel's army is made up of infantry and Syria's army has a lot of cavalry. You don't fight in the hills. You fight on the plains. So they've got both their bases covered. They think they know exactly what's what. The problem for them is they don't understand reality. If they lived in a world where either gods had regional control or there was no God, this would be a fabulous plan. It's really well thought out. The problem is is that their world doesn't exist. The real world has one God. And he is powerful everywhere. That's what they're missing. They've got this bad theology and they don't understand Jehovah's reality. Serious theology cannot handle Jehovah's reality. You see, God knew this was going to happen. Before they even came up with this plan, in verse 22, the prophet came to Ahab and he says, you better strengthen yourself because they're going to come back again in the spring. 
I know it. The Lord has told me. And again, in this battle again, God shows his power. Israel goes out. And what do they look like? They look like two little flocks of of goats. We might say they look like mice before men. This little tiny force goes out against this second humongous force. Now on land of Syrian choosing with a better command. What's going to happen? Well, it's shades of how God has won victories for his people over and over again. There should be, again, some clues that you should pick up here. On the seventh day, God destroys the Israel army, the, excuse me, the Syrian army. And then a wall falls down to add in, insult to injury and kills another 20-something thousand troops. Does that remind you of any other city where God won a great victory on the seventh day when a wall fell down? Do you see the stream of how the Holy Spirit is the author? Echoes of David earlier. Echoes of Joshua now. It's the Spirit of God writing this text. And why does this victory happen? The purpose is seen in verse 28. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand. You see, the reason why God is going to win this victory is to protect his name. It's not so that Ahab can have a better economy. It's so that the name of the Lord will be protected. The Lord is throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying, you say, thus says Ben-Hadad. This is what Ben-Hadad says. This is what God says. Let's see whose word comes to pass. Not once, but twice. Shape up, Syria. Get a clue. Get the drift. But they don't. There's a second reason, though, beyond even just the glory of God's name. Because again, here in verse 28, we see, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, your, Ahab's hand, singular, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Except for here, it's all y'all shall know. Do you see the difference? Now, God is going to declare his lordship, not just in the sight of Ahab, but so that all of Israel will know that he alone is the Lord. This is remedial lesson number two for Israel in this passage. God has a purpose in the might of battle and nations. The question then, I think, comes to us. Are you affected by what God does? Or are you just waiting for the Syrians to listen? 
You see, it's very easy to look at this passage and to translate it into our day and to say, yeah, that would be great if God came in and he destroyed the homosexual lobby and he destroyed the abortion mills and he got after these people and those people and the other people and then say, but we don't have any problems. You see? God does these acts so that you may know he is the Lord. It's not just evangelistic so that unbelievers can know. It's so that you can know and be encouraged and draw strength and to walk in the power of the might of God. Because you see, if we're honest, we can be in the camp of Israel but use Syrian thinking, can't we? God is powerful He can bring revival, well, except for to my small church. The Lord can heal. I have prayed for you, well, except for my marriage. God of the hills. God of the plain. Where's your plain? What part of your life does God not have power in? Is God mighty and powerful and victorious at church, but at work, not so much. Powerful in your marriage, but your kids, not so much in the parenting. Don't think like a Syrian. Think like a part of the people of God, like a child of God. God is not the God of the hills. He's not the God of the church. He's not the God of America. He is the God of the universe. And every part of your life, he has power. Don't limit the Lord. Finally, briefly, we've seen that it's not a good idea to threaten the Lord. It's not a good idea to limit the Lord. And even if you're a part of Israel, it's not a good idea to disobey the Lord either. Don't disobey the Lord. We've seen Syrian mistakes. Now Ahab gets his turn up at the plate. And he's three quick ones and out. Because you see, Ahab comes with pragmatism. He's just seen God work an incredible victory for him, twice. And it's obvious that it is God. Because everybody was down. All the bookies were betting against Israel. The young men go out in the first battle, two little herds of goats, it seems like. Israel goes out in the second battle, and God gives this victory. You see, Ahab's problem is that he takes the victory, but not the lesson. He doesn't learn that the Lord is God. He doesn't learn that God is not the God of the hills. He thinks God is the God of the Syrian battle, but not of his kingdom. And so what happens is, The king of Syria comes a-crawling. You imagine the powwow back in the bunker in the town here. What are we going to do? It's obvious we can't beat these guys. Twice they have beaten us with little tiny armies. I know what we do. We give up. We quit while the quitting is good. Let's send out some guys... And let's try and get mercy. You see, what's all the boasting has stopped. 
one of the guys says, I don't know, we could, we could send somebody out because these kings of Israel are merciful kings. You see, Syrian theology wants to take advantage of biblical morality. If this had happened, if the roles were reversed, Ahab would be swinging on the end of a noose. But see, they say, we know from history that the kings of Israel are merciful kings. Now, think about that next time you're willing to accuse God in the pages of the Old Testament where he orders the destruction of a rebellious and idolatrous people. They have a reputation in the world for being merciful. And they say, let's take advantage of that. And now, Ben-Hadad comes out by his envoys, and he's no longer, thus says Ben-Hadad. He says, um, your servant would like, please, if you would maybe let us live. And you're Ahab. What do you do? Well, of course, what you do is you completely forget who won the war. And you say, oh, yes, my brother Ben-Hadad. Hello, McFly. Just attacked you twice. (laughs) Your brother wanted to take not only everything you had, but everything that was any good. Why in the world would Ahab do this? Is he just that dumb? Well, partly. But not. Because, you see, what we don't know here, just because it's not in the text, is that we have Israel, and then above Israel, north of Israel, we have Ben-Hadad and Syria, And then north of them, we have a big rising empire called Assyria. And Ahab is watching the headlines. And he says, if I'm going to stand up to Assyria, I'd better get the help of Syria and Ben-Hadad. If I'm going to fight this really big empire, I better get this king's help. Because, you know, there's nobody that could help me like a god that could win a battle or anything. You see what he's done? He's completely forgotten where his safety is. Completely. And he makes peace on the most meaningless of terms. He gets back what Ben-Hadad has already stolen from him. And he gets a few marketplaces, a flea market in Damascus. He doesn't even ask for good terms. And God is watching. Just as God is always watching his people... And so Ahab's pragmatism meets with Jehovah's judgment. And we have another one of these odd prophet stories. You remember our last one in 1 Kings 13? With the prophet and the lying prophet and the lion and the, all of that business. And we said, ooh, what? Now here's another thing. Imagine someone walks up to you and says, hey, punch me in the face. He said, I'm not going to punch you in the face. He says, okay, you're going to eat my lion. Next, punch me in the face. He says, okay, I'll give you my best Muhammad Ali. What's going on here? Well, I don't want to get into all the details, but I think the big picture of this is, this is a prophet who goes to, our text says, his fellow. Your text may say companion, friend, another man. And what it means is, it's a prophet who goes up to another prophet. And he says, the Lord has told me, you're to strike me. And this other prophet says, no, I'm not going to listen to the word of the Lord. I know better. And God instantly judges him through a lion. It's a prefiguring of what's about to happen here. And so then the second man strikes this prophet. And so now he looks like he's just come from a battle. 
And he goes in and he sits. And he's, the king comes up, and in a story that's again reminiscent of another story, we'll see in a minute, he gets Ahab's attention. And he says, I need your help here. Tell me here. He says, your servant went out, in verse 39, into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought this man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Now, I want you to get this picture. He hands over this prisoner and he says, your life will be forfeit unless you, a common soldier, can give me 75 pounds of silver. Okay, that's an impossibility. That's like me handing you a pen and saying, listen, you either give me back this pen or you have to give me $3 billion. Never going to happen. So Ahab looks at this situation, and he listens to the excuse. Look at the excuse. Well, and I was busy. I was here, and I was there, and he escaped. It's like the definition of a lame excuse. There's a reason for that. And Ahab looks at him, and he says, Well, I'll tell you what will happen here. This will be your judgment. You, your, uh, No, excuse me. He says, um, The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. You will be put to death. And the prophet, in shades of Nathan, says, Thou art the man, Ahab. That's exactly right. You can almost picture it. See, prophets are dramatic in the scriptures. He probably whips off the bandage, and Ahab recognizes him. And he says, guess what? Your death for his death. Your people for his people. Because you did not obey the Lord. You have no good excuse either, Ahab. God gave the Syrians into your hand not once, but twice. And you decided pragmatism and your name, your fame were more important than honoring the Lord. So you will be judged. And it's a sure judgment. And then Ahab begins to show his true colors. We're going to see more of this next chapter. He goes off at the end of the chapter and he sulks. You see, Ahab isn't fiery. He's not angry. He's a whiner and a moaner. Oh, judgment from God. And he goes off and he whines. And you see, what we see here is that when we disobey the Lord... That mercy rejected is judgment received. It's like that with the gospel, isn't it? If we reject the mercy that God has offered through the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we receive? But judgment. What remains? Paul says, but a fearful waiting and expectation of judgment. This is what God brings to you. He brings to you His mercy that you might receive it. He brings it to us today, even in this table. We have this table before us this morning, that we might receive the mercy of God. And so let us, as we begin to prepare for the worship of our Lord through His table, let me now take us before the Lord our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us this lesson.
that we are to obey you, that we are to obey the demands of the gospel, to believe that you alone are God, that you are without limit, without boundary. Lord, we thank you that your power stretches across geography, across time, across cultural barriers, that we might be called your people. And so we ask, Lord, that even now you would prepare our hearts to partake of your supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forever. Amen.